Morning, Professor Jeremiah McCoy, the monstrous ecologist. I have been asked by the esteemed Dr. Jeff Greiner here on the Tome Show to help enlighten his listeners to the various vagaries of villainous flora and fauna vis-a-vis monsters. In these tales from the desk of the monstrous ecologist, I will be digging into various inspirations for monsters in D&D, both real-world and fictional, as well as the various iterations from the various editions. I will hopefully entertain you with some details that you might not know. Maybe it will also give inspiration in how to use said monsters in your campaign. In this particular scholarly foray, we will return to the subject of liches. You may ask what took so long. To that, I can only say that studying liches is not actually a healthy pursuit. It does take time to recover from such adventures. Uh, I have recovered, of course, so we continue. Before we go too far, let us take a moment to hear from our sponsor. Hello, I am the Monstrous Ecologist. It is hard out here for a scholar of quaint and forgotten lore. Field observation is tiring even at the best of times. I routinely lose money on such expeditions. And don't even get me started with interviewing subjects. Vecna and Xanathar do not answer questions easily. Luckily, some things do make my job a little easier. When looking for sources, I can go to Noble Knight Games. They have an excellent selection of Tomes Arcane, from the Book of Vile Darkness to Von Richten's Guide to the Ancient Dead. From Greyhawk to Mistar to realms even less known, NobleKnight.com is an invaluable resource for gaming products. And worry not, my friends, our Noble Knight is also a brick-and-mortar store, a friendly neighborhood shop which just happens to provide aid to online shoppers as well. They supply a range of new and vintage gaming products and have been longtime friends of the Tome Show. Check out noblenight.com today. Now, to go over things again. In the previous episode, we covered the origins of the Lich, from Kolshai the Deathless to old English terms and pulp writers who inspired the monsters. We also discussed early versions of the monster. We explored the nightmarish formula for becoming a Lich. We also discussed Acerorak and the terrible power of the Demi-Lich. Now we move to the second edition of D&D, and how the Lich changed during this edition. Later we will also discuss the most iconic Lich in the history of the game, Vecna. 
The second edition of D&D often tried to take scattered entries into the game and turn them into a more coherent whole. Monsters got edited and reorganized, and the Lich was no different. In the second edition, Monster Manual lists the Lich and the Demi-Lich side by side, and the relative XP values of for the Lich is listed as 8,000 and 10,000 for the Demi-Lich, indicating the greater difficulty. The Lich is described as being a supra-genius level intelligence. Evil alignment, solitary, and having 11 plus hit dice. Their Thaco is 9 and their armor class is 0. And they have 1 attack. They require plus 1 magic or better hit. This is all in keeping with the previous iterations, with minor differences to reflect the changes in the additions. Uh, described as a single most powerful form of undead known to exist, they are known for seeking power exclusively. They resemble a white or a mummy, being gaunt and skeletal. It specifies they were originally an 18th level wizard before transformation. It appears most will be garbed in noble clothing, though probably worn with age. In combat, they have an aura, which makes creatures within five hit dice or less flee if they do not pass a saving throw. If they touch a victim, they must also save or become paralyzed. Given their nature, liches are immune to charm, sleep, enfeeblement, polymorph, cold, electricity, insanity, or death spells. Again, all in keeping with the previous iterations. A priest of 8th level or a paladin of 10th level can attempt to turn them. Again, it is emphasized that liches are spellcasters. They can cast spells just like in life, but with an additional note that they have had a long time to research new spells or items, so they may cast or use things unknown to the adventurers. This is a useful note to keep in mind when you're thinking of having a lich in your game. The phylactery is again brought up, and the items are, of course, as before, almost always hidden in some manner. Their behavior is described as solitary and focused, living in secured keeps or crypts away from prying eyes. They can, on occasion, and sometimes do, use lesser undead as servants. The point is made that liches don't use their original names. They have forgotten it from lack of use or deliberately obscure them uh, to use a, an assumed title instead. It is suggested that knowing their true names gives power over the lich, but there are no details or rules given for this. True name magic is a concept that does have some power to it. It's been around for a long time. But sadly, D&D has never really explored it much. 
their entry in the monster manual does include some details for becoming a lich. First, to create a phylactery, which is an expensive proposition, a minimum of 27,000 gold is spent on the creation of the item, plus it must be enchanted with enchant an item, magic jar, permanency, and reincarnation spells. The cost went up from the previous edition, in fact, but that's inflation for you. Then, the would-be lich needs to craft a terrible potion, which we discussed last time, and has the spells cast into it Wraithform, Permanency, Cone of Cold, Vein Death, and Animate Dead. When the next full moon comes, you drink the potion instead of killing you, it begins transforming you. You must pass a system shock test. If it fails, you die. But if it succeeds, you are a lich. The Dimmy Lich is described and is more terrible than a normal lich, as was in the previous edition. They have ascended beyond a simple lich. When encountered, you will encounter their dust wraith-like forms. In its dust form, it gets converted to energy. At 50 points of energy, it transforms into a ghost. With the form it had as a lich, it has the powers and abilities of a ghost, but can't be turned. There will be a skull present with gems or te- gems for teeth. If touched, the skull emits a howl, which acts like a death ray to anyone within 20 feet, save or die. Ultimately, the Demi Lich is, well, largely working the way it did in the previous edition. It still traps souls in gems, specifically the gems it uses teeth, and is nearly impossible to kill. Little has changed here with a few minor language changes. There is also an entry for the Arch Lich, which is a Lich of a good priest, through extreme circumstances, is transformed into an undead state. It gives no further information on the Arch Lich in the Monster Manual. Now, Second Edition also brought us the horror-themed setting of Ravenloft. The plane is called a Demi-Plane and functions as a space that exists in all planes as a home for horrifying creatures. Uh, Ravenloft gave us iterations of a whole range of monsters, from uh, vampires to ghosts and liches as well. Uh, These iterations included monsters exclusive to certain respective settings. Uh, like Dark Sun, for instance. This increased diversity to the Lich type showed the broad appeal of that sort of monster, a plotting, unbleaking, undead creature with vast knowledge and powers, just as scary, however you frame it. Among the new versions, we have the Defiler Lich. Now, the Defiler Lich uh, well, sometimes called Kaisharga, and look like normal liches, skeletal, more the like. Their eyes glow green. Uh, they also possess some psionic power, 
Um, their touch uh, harms the living, but uh, does double damage to spellcasters. Uh, they have the usual range of abilities one expects from a lich, but they are somehow even worse. Their use of magic kills plant life in all directions near them when they cast. The greater the power of the spell, well, the greater the radius. In general, the animals in the space suffer pain. This pain is expressed as a penalty to initiative to anyone in the affected area. It also harms animated plants. As a seemingly minor point, plants used as spell components are destroyed in the area of effect. Now, the suggestion in the lore is that the Defiler Lich, which arrived in Ravenloft, actually began in Dark Sun, which would explain their magic and their psionics and the sort of Defiler theme that applies to them. The Demi Lich Defiler is again like the normal Defiler Lich, just more so. They do have a new curse that they can bestow which makes a person emit an aura that kills plants. Druids and rangers will, of course, detect the presence of defiler liches in the vicinity and would almost be betraying their nature and the gods to ignore their presence. We also have the drow lich. Uh, the darker-skinned lich, of course, uh is much like other liches in most respects. They are from a heavily magical and regimented society, so they do have some, well, high-end items that are available to them that might not be available to others, um, such as a Staff of Power or a Wand of Fireball. Their lair is said to be populated with spiders that crawl over everything. Not that this bothers a corpse, but adventurers may find that distracting. There is a greater detail about the priest-type drow lich. The primary god of the drow is, of course, Loth, the Spider Queen. All priest-type drow liches are universally female, and they can command the undead. They also can transform normal spiders into giant spiders. Uh, then there's driders. Driders are made as a punishment. The upper body of a drow is attached to the lower body of a giant spider. Sort of like the centaur, I suppose. Just more terrible. Uh, these beings are rare. And they're having their resources enough to become a lich on top of being a drider is even rarer. Still, it's not unheard of. They are specified to be slightly less powerful than other drow liches, but you should probably run away anyway. Now, uh, Ravenloft also introduced the elemental lich. Uh, these elemental liches are like the traditional arcane liches we are familiar with, but the major difference is in an elemental focus. They draw their power from elemental might. They cannot control undead. They are much more likely to have 
elemental minions. Also, uh, much more hands-on than most liches. They have a number of touch attacks that cause various dire elemental effects. Arguably the worst is the touch of mist. This could, if the victim did not resist with a saving throw, uh, change their alignment to chaotic evil and make them a willing servant of the elemental lich. In Ravenloft, they are closely tied to the dark elemental powers found there. They make deals with them to hide their phylactery. They bury it and let the ashes sink into the soil. The deal they strike with the dark powers means that the location becomes cloaked or clouded by mist. There are psionic liches as well. Uh, These liches uh, draw their power from psionics and not from arcane mastery. Describing their range of psionic abilities would require exploration of psionics as found in 2nd edition. I will leave that to my esteemed colleagues over at the Edition Wars podcast, as that is something that they will likely get around to discussing. Suffice it to say that their power is on par with the arcane might of a traditional lich. They rarely fight directly, but use a legion of minions, often living minions, to handle intruders into their plans. Many scions would see them as revered as masters for all of their abilities. There are details concerning their creation. The most important details, of course, is that they, too, also have phylacteries. Uh, I should add a couple of extra notable lich types that were introduced in second edition. The Bell Norn is an odd case, mainly because it presages the third edition Eberron elves having revered ancestors. The elves of Faerun do have the possibility of voluntarily becoming liches to serve a specific purpose. These were called Bell Norn. The Belnorn become liches in much the same way as the normal ones, presumably, but they do not cause fear in people and don't have to be evil to pursue it. It's still undeath, though, with all of the baggage that is attached uh, and the disadvantages of that. They also can become evil after transformation, but the transformation does not require it. Then we have the Sewell Liches. The Sewell Liches are an oddity as well. In some ways, they are more terrifying. Their true form is a shadowy undead that possesses a human to have a corporeal existence. Their gaze can kill lesser humans, and even those that pass a saving throw are paralyzed. Uh, This, thankfully, only affects lower-level characters. When the Sewell Lich increases its power, it must find a new host. The higher level the Lich goes, the higher level the host needs to be to contain them. The host body becomes leathery, their eyes emit black magical fire. 
their origins in Greyhawk, the Empire of Sul was destroyed by a magical reign of fire. Human survivors exist throughout the world and tend to pale whiteness to the point of being albinos. Uh, there is an unsavory attachment to racial purity in their cultural identity, making the humans of the line almost as unpleasant as the undead remnants. Since we have come around to Greyhawk, it is time to dig into that most storied lich, Vecna, the Whispered One himself. Vecna began only as a name. An early D&D supplement called Eldritch Wizardry, we find the first mention of Vecna. The hand and eye of Vecna are introduced. Uh, the very brief backstory for each of them describes Vecna as a powerful lich, and not much more. So all we had was a name. That name was also an inside joke. It is an anagram. Anagrams were pretty common in early D&D because Gary Gygax loved them. And Vecna is an anagram for Vance, as in Jack Vance. The magic system of D&D is largely inspired by the works of Mr. Vance, so it makes sense that they would desire to honor him um, with this name. Now, Vecna's one-time ally and later foe, Cass, also gets a mention in Eldritch Wizardry. We find that his sword is listed and described as well. Uh, despite his famous body parts making it into the early game, we did not see Vecna himself until 2nd edition in a series of three adventures. Three adventures deal directly with Vecna. Vecna lives. Uh, this module is the first appearance as the villain in a module. His hand and eye were listed as artifacts, and he is talking about in the past tense. But Vecna is a demigod version of himself, and his followers are the villains of the story. The PCs succeed by driving him away to Greyhawk. Uh, Vecna Reborn is the second adventure. It is set in Ravenloft after the events of the first adventure. Vecna is trapped in a domain made to resemble his mortal kingdom. Cass is also in a domain of his own in Ravenloft. If the PCs don't mess up, they never see either of them directly. Uh, Die, Vecna, Die, the last in the trilogy, is also the end of the second edition, more or less. Uh, the adventure features visits to Ravenloft and Planescape, neither of which uh, has existed since 2nd edition, really. Not in an official capacity, mind you. And, of course, uh, White Wolf had some Ravenloft products for 3rd edition, uh, but they couldn't use Greyhawk or any of the lore materials, so it is largely considered to be a nebulous other thing. Uh, critical Role... Uh, should get an honorable mention while I'm listing adventures. Critical Role had a visit of the character that might not be canonical, but it is worthy of note. Vecna is represented as the ascendant lesser god he is, uh, 
and incorporates his mythology quite well. We should explore Vecna's backstory a little as well. Vecna hails from the plain of Greyhawk, as we discussed. His mortal life is cloaked in mystery. He was born human, a member of a lower caste in a city on Earth that's spelled O-E-R-T-H, Earth, and the city he was born into is called Fleeth. His mother may have been a witch and was executed for said witchcraft. One can imagine him swearing revenge and beginning his long path to his bloody rule. Or maybe he was always a monster at heart from the beginning. We really don't know. Where he learned to become a lich is unclear, but it might have involved a being called Moxlick, the serpent, said to be the source of all arcane magic. The serpent was part of a class of godlike beings which may predate the gods themselves and maybe even the multiverse. It would be worth an exploration on its own, except there is not much information to work from. Vecna did eventually become a lich. He, he ruled a land in Greyhawk from a stronghold called the Rotting Tower. Uh, he eventually tried to conquer uh, the city which killed his mother, Fleeth, a thousand years earlier. He was almost destroyed by the city the first time and was only saved by a Serag. He later came back and conquered Fleeth. His brutal and merciless ways in war were terribly effective. He eventually had his empire come to an end when his lieutenant, a vampire named Kaz, turned on him. The resulting battle killed both of them, leaving artifacts in the field, the sword of Kaz and the fabled eye and hand of Vecna. That was not the end of Vecna, however. His artifacts were part of a scheme he laid in place to not only come back, but to transcend earthly power and become a god. He was trapped for a time in the plain of Ravenloft and a few extra-planar realms later, but he eventually succeeded in becoming a god. He became a dark god, the Whispered One, the god of knowledge. His followers remained secretly active throughout the multiverse, his writings are considered holy texts to his followers. He contributed to the Book of Vile Darkness and also wrote the tome called Ordinary Necromancy. His followers and church make extensive use of undead and see it as a desirable state. They will seek to become liches themselves. Gathering his sacred pieces is a major goal of the church. Multiple body parts are tied to him, each giving different powers. They also make the owner immune to Vecna's normal damaging spells because they become part of Vecna. I should mention a side note. The head of Vecna does not actually exist. It is a vicious prank on fools who would tie themselves to him. Cutting off body parts and attaching Vecna parts is required to have their power. So chopping off the head of a recipient 
is apt to end badly for someone. So, there we leave Vecna. He started as a name, a bit of a joking nod to the origin of the game. He became the undisputed icon of Lichdom. His name became synonymous with an iconic monster. Then the creators of the game let him grow beyond that. Now, the Whispered One is a god of secrets. By that, we have established the Lich. The path of the Lich. Power is never enough for a Lich. There are always new heights of evil to climb. Anyways, that has been our second episode concerning liches. When next we dig into the lich, we'll begin to wrap up these creatures by discussing the third, fourth, and current editions of D&D and how the lich has changed. We will also dig into the tragic and terrible tale of Arandis Vol. Thank you for listening to the Monster Psychologist on the Tome Show. If you enjoyed this, uh, please uh, contribute to our Patreon. The Tome Show Patreon will have a link in our show notes. Uh, you can follow me at Technoir on Twitter. Uh, or you can email the Tome Show at gmail.com uh, to provide us with some feedback about things that you think we should know. I hope to speak to you again soon, and enjoy your scholarship.